Hello, everyone. Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks, and we are here to discuss the Bad Batch episode 12, Infested. I'm sorry, episode 13, Infested. With me is Steve and Christina, and we're going to have a rip-roaring good time with some legal analysis. Christina, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, I am... Uh finished with the um, uh, High Republic books that came out. I finished both of them this week. So um, I'm waiting anxiously for the one that comes out on um, on uh, Tuesday, I believe. So um, so I am caught up with the uh, with the High Republic as of now, although I, I still have some comic books to read. How do you like uh, the High Republic? I've never I, read a Star Wars book, so I'm curious. Really, I love them. I, I've 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 really kind of immersed myself in the Star Wars books. I've not read all of them, but I've read, I would say probably about sixty percent of the new canon. Um, and I was not um, I was not a um, ex expanded universe person, but I, I I really have enjoyed kind of going deeper into uh, Star Wars, and I, I really love the High Republic because it's nothing that. Uh, we've ever seen before. So that's fun stuff. Awesome. And Steve, how are you doing? Doing okay. Thank you. How, how about you guys? Doing well. Now, this weekend would have normally been San Diego Comic-Con. Steve, you live in San Diego. You went by the convention center. What was it like? <clears throat> you know, uh, so San Diego Comic-Con is just a real um, important time for me and my family. It's probably my favorite week of the year. Every year we've gone, I think it was 17 years in a row before the last two that were not, you know, that did not happen. Although a few of my friends joked with me that I, I did go down to the convention center during Comic-Con weekend each of the last two years. So some of my friends are pointing out, well, no, you, you've kept your streak alive. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe in my head canon, you know, that that, that seems to work. Um, you know, last year, the schools and everything shut down March 13. So it was only about three, four months before Comic-Con and it was kind of a shock. Everything was shut down. This year, we were of course, hoping to have San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, did not happen again. The numbers overall have been better, although recently they're trending upwards, unfortunately, with case numbers, COVID case numbers, that is. So um, what happened, though, was many um, friends and people I know decided to have some get-togethers outside the convention center. Cosplayers got together. They, uh, came, they organized an event where they would do a march and have a big get-together, a blood drive, just a lot of you know, really positive things. So I went down there yesterday, met up with a couple of good friends, and we hit a couple of locations, hit a local comic store, the public library, and got lunch um, outside at this area right by the cosplayer. So we were just kind of in the middle of it all. And then we walked over with a lot of folks to the actual convention center. And every year, as most Comic-Con goers know, that there is a huge cosplay photograph taken on the stairs of the convention center. So we actually did replicate that this year. I would say the number of cosplayers was maybe one quarter of what it is you know, during a regular Comic-Con, but it was still nice to see a lot of people there. Uh, you know, th these are uh, people who share a real passion for San Diego, San Diego Comic-Con and just 
fandom in general. So it was really nice to be around folks and everyone was happy to be there. And uh, a lot of folks were talking about the potential November show that is supposed to happen over Thanksgiving. And, you know, we're crossing our fingers that that will happen too. So I took my youngest and we walked around and, uh, you know, we even got an exclusive from the Super 7 store. So that's a Comic-Con exclusive. So, you know, we, we had a little bit of everything. Uh, my little my son dressed up too. So um, I feel as if the spirit of Comic-Con is still alive and strong, even if the actual convention did not happen. It was uh, nice to see like uh, Sean uh, Richter and uh, his posts yeah. and all the, uh, those who actually gathered. Uh, I spent most of the weekend watching the virtual panels and like, I'm okay with like not, you know, going, you know, traveling during the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, still being like one year in on a new job and lots of busy cases taking place, you know, not having to worry about travel. Like I'm okay with that. Like it was uh, like that, that was, that's okay to me. Like, you know, do I miss it? Of course. I mean, I would be lying if I said I didn't, but uh, I'm okay with, you know, doing things virtually as we, try to get you know those who are refusing to get vaccinated vaccinated so we can all be safe and uh you know there's a lawyer that i know who was in very much in the anti-vax camp and she got the delta variant and reading her ex you know very long post that uh she ran six miles the day before she came down uh with it and described it as it felt like she was breathing through a straw yeah. And, you know, just, re, you know, she flipped, you know, because the doctor told her this is preventable and you refusing to, you know, get vaccinated is what caused this. And she's quite the advocate now for get your shot. And it's a, good for her. Uh, and I'm glad she's recovering and, you know, her, her, her uh, oxygen rate is good and like she's she's doing much better but uh you know she described you know 15 days of pure torture uh well, glad, glad through, she's doing better yeah me too me too i was uh she is a geek she there's a lot of sci-fi that she enjoys as well and uh been friends with her husband for many years so i'm i'm glad that you know, she's bouncing back. That said, when it comes to everything that was put on by the good folks at Comic-Con, there was some awesome panels. Uh, the, you know, some that I watched included uh, retrospectives on Ray Bradbury, uh, Ray Harryhausen. There was a beautiful uh, one on the uh, on Marvel and the anniversary of the Fantastic Four and this museum that's built. I think uh, the, the presenter was from uh, the University of Oregon. And I mean, it, it looks like you walk into a comic, you know, it's just, just really neat stuff uh, that they have in there. Plus, um, uh, I, there was one on Edgar Rice Burroughs that just was fascinating. 
uh, because that was one prolific writer who basically invented science fiction as we know it. And they're continuing stories. Uh, they are, uh, like there was, there's one series that Burroughs started that takes place in another solar system where all the planets are equal distance from the sun and they're all equal distance from each other. And the story acknowledges this wasn't natural, but that's a story from another time. And Burroughs wrote a story that took place on one of those 12 planet or 11 planets. So they decided, well, let's write a story about one on the other 10. And it's like, that sounds interesting. The other thing that they are doing is, uh, you know, Burroughs created Tarzan. They're working on separate Jane stories to show her as an independent separate character, not dependent upon Tarzan. And it, you know, like the premise is her in Antarctica and, and there was like a woolly mammoth behind her and a saber tooth uh, tiger. It's like, nice. And like, that's a Kickstarter project. It's like, I threw down 20 bucks for that. It's like, this sounds like a neat thing. So they really did a nice job of celebrating comics. Uh, there was a beautiful Dune panel on uh, the books that are coming out and the graphic novels that they're working on. So there was a lot of cool stuff that came out for, you know, during Comic-Con for their panel content. Uh, they also said, you know, nice things about the ones that we did. We did a, a, a This is the Law, Judges on the Mandalorian, and the LA Times recognized us as one of the top 10 panels to watch, which, you know, when I think of all those years you know, not dating, not going out and doing anything fun and to get that kind of validation, <laughs> that felt good. That felt really good uh, to, to get that high five feeling. So it's, uh, it is good stuff. Uh, and the, uh, the panel content was, uh, you know, Circuit Judge John Owens, uh, Magistrate Judge Stacy Beckerman, and uh, Matthew Sherino, uh, judge in, in New York's uh, city, specifically in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, again, all, all heavy Star Wars fans. And it was just so much fun. And you know, we really had a good time editing and getting a nice tight, uh, just under 60 minute video. Wow. And it was, yeah. Uh, there is an extended cut that I will release. <laughs> so there's uh, uh, there were some really deep, you know, discussions on a couple of the things. But um, you know, it's like for a video, you, know, you want it tight so everyone can like see things and and move on. Uh, but again, it was a good time. It was a really good time. So for everyone who watched, thank you. And if you haven't, check it out. It's on our Facebook page. It's on the Comic Con channel. We have it on our YouTube uh, page uh, in our Star Wars playlist. And it was a wonderful time talking Mandalorian. So look forward to more. And on that Star Wars note, uh, let's talk about Infested, the latest episode of The Bad Batch, where I, I enjoyed this episode, but I kept thinking, Spice is cocaine. And you know, like when you think about that, it puts it into a really weird context 
you know, realizing that we're dealing with drug smuggling and it's a, it's a really weird feeling. Did either of you have that? And uh, Christina, why don't we start with your reaction? Well, I think, I think of it more like, um, more like heroin than cocaine in that there are medicinal uses for it. I've always gotten the impression that, um, you know, it could be morphine um, if processed in a, pro in a, in a particular way. Um, it's certainly dangerous and certainly not something that is looked upon with uh, uh, any sort of legitimacy, but I have, I have seen it in various episodes of in other contexts where it, it could be an okay thing in the right hands with the right people. Um, and I think the Martez sisters were self-justifying their, their spice um, relationship uh, when they got into a similar pickle with the Pikes um, in uh, the last season of the, of the Clone Wars. So um, I, I don't see it quite as, you know, um, contraband as, um, you know, a flat out illegal drug, but it certainly has the potential of being so. And certainly the Pikes seem to be operating in, under that. Yeah, the, the Pikes did act like the Colombian drug lord that was gonna behead someone. So there was that vibe. Steve, your reactions to it? Yeah, I, I kept thinking about, and you made the reference just a moment ago to Dune. I kept thinking about, oh, okay, spice like Dune, you know, this kind of controls folding of space and travel and a lot of, you know, the fates of all these empires and worlds and, you know, generations. Um, yeah, I, I certainly like to look at it better um, in that light rather than as a controlled substance. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> that's mostly what I was thinking. I, you know, in, in a way, it's sort of a MacGuffin. I mean, it, it almost doesn't matter what it is they're trying to get. All that matters is that it's something that the Pikes want. So it could be some drug, it could be some spice, some food items, some weapons, some energy generator. It could be anything, really. Um, you know, but the point of it in the story was to get it away from the Pikes and, um, you know, get, get Sid's... Um, uh, you know, opponent uh, in trouble, so. Yeah, I, for me, I still get hung up on the drug deal aspect of it because Roland has this because he's supposed to sell it and then give the Pikes money or the Pikes are supposed to get it and then they get paid for it. And like, it's a large cocaine shipment. And Sid is, you know, very Machiavellian with if we get it from uh, Roland and then the Pikes will take care of Roland for me. And which again, it just sounds like, you know, you're dealing with uh, the mob or drug lords and they will eliminate the problem if they don't have the product that they want. So that just kind of haunted me the entire time while watching it. And I don't know how intentional that was for the writers of that just something that they just thought about oh we'll just do it this way because we want to focus on cute ruby running around uh but I, i'm honestly not sure uh it's been kind of a it, I've, I've just been thinking about it you know since friday morning when i watched it 
which then raises you know the legal issues with that and let's just jump in and when the bad batch go to sid's parlor they find out that she's you know what an unknown fate did they have a duty to rescue her from that unknown fate and uh, christina your thoughts on that i don't think so um i don't i don't see any any particular affirmative duty on, on their part i mean it, it you know they they were unaware of the circumstances under which she was um ousted from her domicile but um they're not her protectors she's never hired them for anything of that sort um you know they're they're not even very good acquaintances i mean they don't seem to like each other very much except for omega um so i don't i don't see any sort of affirmative duty to help her out other than you know this is somebody who's in trouble but she's not necessarily a good person either um you know she's a weapons smuggler and a you know a, a, a procurer of mercenaries so um you know it's just you know they know her better so uh i don't i don't necessarily see a, a duty um to protect her yeah, which, or to help her. And, and to get there we need a special relationship and it could even be a fiduciary relationship uh you know between them and when we look at the elements for a fiduciary for a that special relationship to exist they're not family members but maybe on the fiduciary level there there could be some aspect there and in which reminds me of a blog post i did about uh, raiders of the lost ark and whether you know there was a fiduciary duty when uh you know to to retrieve the original idol at the beginning of that with you know throw me the idol i'll throw you the whip like they were together on an adventure and then you have the future doc ock uh betray indy so you know, looking at it like in that context, yeah, they're business partners, but it might be more of an independent contractor type relationship. So, you know, there isn't really a, you know, a, a agency type relationship that, that would be present for creating, you know, a duty uh, to go help her. Uh, Steve, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, you know, I, I concur with what you guys have said. Uh, you know, in order for there to be some kind of a duty to rescue, you typically have to have a pretty strong relationship of some form, or you have maybe been the one to put the person in harm's way. So now you have a responsibility to sort of correct that, rectify that. Neither of which is true here. You know, I, I think that the relationship between the Bad Batch and Sig can best be described as you know, basically like an independent contractor you know, just trying to get some work from the general, the prime contractor, you know, whenever she's got some work, um, you know, arguably goes a little bit beyond that because Sid says that she's kept their secrets and has not sold them out. Like, okay, I mean, I guess that's something. Maybe they owe her a little bit for that. And she said that, you know, she's putting things on their tab. So they still owe her a lot before they can pay her off. Eh, okay. I mean, you know, maybe it's slightly different from a contractor relationship. Maybe they do owe her something and they're paying her off. But at the same time, you know, an actual duty to rescue, if they rescue her, then I think that they should have more than paid off their debt at that point. 
Well, and it was unclear if she was any in any particular danger. I mean, she was kicked out of her place and and it wasn't hers anymore, but it wasn't like, you know, anybody was hunting her down or anything. Right. Um, right. you know, it was it was she's no longer in in her house or bar or whatever. It's right. not like she was, you know, on the run and and in order to um to be safe, this threat needed to be eliminated. She could have easily set up someplace else, gone away. Um, it was just that her bar was taken over by a right. bunch of bugs. So yeah, she, she she's just hanging out on a starship, actually, just kind of waiting in the in the docking bay. So yeah. she's she's doing okay, you know. She she has a, no bodily harm. She's lost some of her you know property, but you know, but she she could be a lot worse. But they didn't. I mean, <clears throat> Tech says it the best. Either she was taken out or taken down, and. So like they don't know her status, and yeah. it's again it's Omega going like, we should go help her because again it's the nine year old with a sense of moral compass with like ah, uh, she's cool. We made lots of money hustling people with the strategy game, so why leave her out? As on the issue of I've kept your secrets, they've kept hers. Yeah. Exactly. It is mutually assured destruction that they could go turn <laughs> yeah. states' evidence and yeah. <laughs> go like right. go after her. She's got ties to this fledgling rebellion. Yeah. And another uh nefarious contacts. Yeah. Even though everything that we've seen the Bad Batch do at her behalf, what hasn't been like assassinations. It's been uh, liberate a separatist senator who's being held by the imperials uh, go rescue two different animals so like it it hasn't been you know anything dirty well that, i mean there were arm sales but yeah well again arm sales to the good guys so that makes <laughs> it okay as long as we're selling to the good guys yeah right <laughs> It's not an Iran-Contra complex. I mean, it's pretty straightforward of the freedom fighters need the weapons, not something really complicated that might have been mild treason. But anyway, um, that's just, yeah. There's it's no a lot more like, it's a lot more like in The Last Jedi, you know, the uh, the the character, um, <clears throat> oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to forget his name, but he did not reappear in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, but you know, he says, Oh, good guys, bad guys, you know, whatever, it's all the same. You know, you, you just supply your X Wings and TIE fighters and you know, laser cannons and just kind of let things sort themselves out. That, that's the attitude that they have, at least. Yeah, well, on that note, let's talk about the plan that they come up with. And I describe this as a conspiracy to steal illegal drugs from Roland Duland. There's a lot to unpack there because there's a conspiracy because we have more than two people coming to an agreement. Spice is illegal, so we got that in play. And they want to go take it from the, the bad guy who has taken over the morally gray person's place of business. And the goal of this conspiracy is to have the Pikes remove Roland as a problem. Steve, do you have any moral problems with this plan? <laughs> you know, morality in Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars often does a pretty good job of painting things in black and white. 
the gray morality, I, I would say that Star Trek does a better job um, of the gray morality, such as in the pale moonlight. And, you know, there we go, the one Star Trek reference here, but absolutely love that episode. Um, <clears throat> I mean, are, are there problems here? You know, Sid, okay, because she's voiced by Rhea Perlman, you know, I, I find her very um, endearing, you know, but she probably, you know, someone doesn't get to her position by just making friends and being nice. I mean, she probably had to step on a few shoulders to get to where she is. She's helping the Bad Batch, so we like her for that, but, you know, she's not exact. she's not exactly, you know, doing this out of the kindness of her heart. Um, so, you know, she's definitely got some skeletons in her closet, I think. Now, she, you know, we're upset because she gets kicked to the curb by this new guy. Um, and he seems even more morally bankrupt than Sid. So, okay, so we kick him out. There's that school of thought that, you know, when you have a crime boss, and I don't know if that's the right word for Sid, but when you have someone in that position, even if you take down that person, someone else will rise to fill that position. It's almost like some natural order of society or whatnot. You know, I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree with that, but, you know, there, there are people that believe in that and uh, there have been examples of that occurring. So I don't know. Um, you know. Sometimes the more practical choice is better the, you know, the enemy you know than the one you don't, right? So maybe you want someone, if Sid's going to go down, put someone in there who's at least fairly predictable. And this guy appears to be pretty predictable, actually. So, yeah, there's a lot there to unwind. Um, she was friends with the Jedi for a reason. And the Jedi did work with her. So there's that. Um, so let's not forget that part of it. So she's not thinking of her as like the ultimate libertarian businesswoman who's not doing anything to cause greater harm, but she, the way that uh, where she exists in the shadows is not exactly you know in the light. Um, but I do think it's important to remember the Jedi trusted her for a reason, and maybe it's because she's still making the right decisions. Again, we saw two animal rescues from her, and, and you know, go liberate liberate someone who's being held unlawfully get arms to, you know, people who are fighting the empire. Like she might be in the shadows, but she's still facing the light. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the best we can hope for is that she ends up being like Maz Kanata, you know, from the sequel trilogy where she kind of seems to start off as, you know, somewhere in the gray area, but then comes full mm -hmm. on to the, the light side, you know, to the point where she's at the resistance camp and actively helping them later on. You know, that that may be the best we can hope for from Sid. And that would be, you know, that would be very good if she ends up on the light, the, the light side in that way. Uh, I could see her and Maz Kanata hanging out and having um, a resort together. Like that doesn't seem uh, an unplausible uh, business venture. Uh, Christina, any thoughts on the conspiracy that we see uh, in this episode? Um. Yeah, I find it kind of fascinating that it's entirely Sid's um, um, idea, her execution of the, I mean, it's her plan. It's everything 
you know, they're sort of like, okay, fine, we'll do it. You know, they don't really have much input in it. Um, they're just sort of following her suggestions and, you know, are literally her muscle, um, uh, which kind of suggests that they trust her to some extent um, and do feel something for her. Um, you know, part of this, I think, is just learning to uh, interact with other people beyond your immediate brothers um, or sister, in the case of Omega. Um, you know, they're, they're expanding their idea of who um, they're, they, they want to, to interact with and protect and trust. Um, so, but, um, you know, definitely it was without question. They didn't really go deep into, you know, the moral quandaries of, of breaking into somebody's um, bar and stealing the spice, you know, in part, I think, because they're still considering it her place. So breaking into her place doesn't seem like it's, um, you know, I think that would be a very difficult thing for anybody to say was a, was a unlawful entry. Um, maybe the methodology in which they used, if that was a condemned route or something like that. But, but, um, but um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are some torts of, of, that can come into play over the building a, a route like that in that kind of conditions. Um, and then the other question about the spice is, um, you know, I, I do find it interesting that they, without compunction, have no problem with the pikes coming in and slaughtering all of those guards. Um, you know, it, it doesn't even occur to them that that would be not a, the best way of handling this. Um, uh, and it's possible that they didn't truly understand the reputation that the pikes have. And Sid was definitely banking on that, I think. That's clear, because despite these guys being a, an elite unit of soldiers, they don't know the criminal underworld, and they definitely don't understand the pikes, which again is a nice Clone Wars uh, I don't, character, group of characters, organization that they've now imported into the Bad Batch. So that's cool. Uh, and I don't know if this is a way to tease a Darth Maul revival, but he's also like a month away, you know, from or two from um, Order 66. So Lord knows where he is and, you know, rebuilding his criminal empire to get Crimson Dawn up and running. So I don't know. Uh, that said, uh, a lot there. Yeah, the... The Bad Batches usually use their weapons on stun yeah. in most of the firefights. <clears throat> they, what do you do when you go back to the bar and it's full of bodies? <laughs> like, it's, uh, how are you going to clean that up? Yeah. You know, do you, do you need to call someone? Because that's the way, that would trigger a major investigation. Like, you can't go back to... You know, if you went home and there's a dozen dead people, there's going to be paperwork and law enforcement's <laughs> going to be spending lots of time with you to figure out what the hell happened. Uh, this is like, all right, let's, you know, get ready to rock and roll. Uh, but the yeah, insurance so, paperwork is insane. <laughs> yeah, it's just, 
how did all these dudes die? What happened? So, which again, super libertarian, just a very libertarian society of just guns and bullets and, and credits. So, boy, howdy. So with that, uh, part of the plan is uh, for Hammerhead and the other character, I'm, uh, you know, I'm blanking on both of their proper names, is to get Ruby in order to get Roland out of the parlor. They're, you know, they lure the animal out because I don't know what species Ruby is, but they lure her out with the little treats and they put her in a cage and they're not overtly trying to harm the creature, but it just seems rather problematic of we're gonna take somebody's pet hostage. Either of you have observations or analysis on this point? You know, it, in uh, its defense, I guess, if I were defending her, I would say, well, they didn't actually hurt the pet. You know, it was all non-lethal, not even didn't harm the pet in any way, just fed the pet, put, uh, put her in, in a cage and tried to take her away and just kind of keep her somewhere else. Yeah, sure, it's kind of like kidnapping or poaching or whatnot, but um, they didn't actually harm any creatures or animals here. That's probably their best defense at that point. Um, you know, it, it's also interesting that this pet developed such a connection to Roland, um, also to Omega. Um, I don't know, it seems to be some universal rule that crime bosses just have to have pets, you know? Jabba's got salacious crumb and, you know, his whole denizen of people, you know? I don't know if it goes back to uh, Blofeld with the white cat, but there's definitely yeah, right. elements of, of that sort of connection there. Uh, but, you know, there's the other fact that it's the, you know, Omega makes the point of like, well, Ruby likes him, so he must not all be bad. It's like, Stalin was good with dogs you know I just, <laughs> there, there's photos of hitlers with with hitler uh, with german shepherds doesn't mean like he was nice uh just because he could play fetch like that's not like it's not the I, test it, it seems like uh like omega has the same kind of inclination towards trusting suspect people that ezra had and ezra you know was constantly um yeah. going toward you know first with Vizago then with um uh, Hondo with Maul um most most of the times his instincts were okay-ish but not necessarily all the time but there seems to be like this sort of weird inclination for these kids to start trusting people who the rest of the circumstances don't really say this is a this is a good person. Um, yeah, it's with the exception of Hondo because Han, Ezra made Hondo better, and 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 also Hondo goes from wanting to kill younglings for their kyber crystals to saving them and then naming a ship after one of them. So, uh, but Maul was definitely not. Um, uh, how you end up on a milk carton. Um, just not a good plan. Uh, 
that said, that is an interesting observation connecting the two of them because we don't, um, Omega's pretty good at going, that person's bad, that person's like, okay. She's got a pretty good um, sense about who's, who's trustworthy. Um, and even at the end of this, where you know, this gets to the other issue of mutilation, you know, like Sid is sticking up for like, let's not execute Roland here on, on the blocks of spice, you know, like call it a bad deal and walk away. Uh, which then let's talk about what mutilation is <laughs> and it's in the term for what happens. And uh, I don't know uh, the species that Roland is. I don't know if the horns are like necessary for equilibrium, like if, or if they're just decorative on one level, I mean, probably good in a fight, but you know, like, do they, are they vital to his sense of being able to walk through a door or is he gonna be like spinning in circles from now on because he's like off balance? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if the writers know the answer to that, but cutting a horn off Definitely mutilation up there with cutting a finger off, gouging out an eye. Just because it's a horn, it's still part of him. You know, again, it's the, again, think criminal drug lords going like, oh, we'll just cut off one of his ears. Okay, that's, you just mutilated somebody and he gets mutil mutilated, but he, he kind of takes that in stride like, it could have been worse. <laughs> it could have, it's just a horn. Like if it's just there, it's not like an ear, not like an eye, not like they pulled out a couple teeth. Uh, either of you want to jump in on that. You know, this whole thing calls back to mind um, some of the basic principles of contract law. You know, essentially in our legal system, private parties can contract um, almost anything, you know, the power to contract is pretty, um, pretty wide. However, one of the outer boundaries that people cannot include in a contract term, and that is that it would be unenforceable if you put this in, would be bodily harm. You know, if, if you say, well, I will pay you $100 or you can cut off a finger of mine. Yeah, that contract will not be enforceable. Uh, no court of law would enforce it because it would be considered what's called void against public policy. We don't want people to be able to contract for bodily harm because it could lead to some undesirable results. Uh, in the Star Wars world, I don't know if they have a similar prohibition. Uh, it is very interesting. Um, my big takeaway was what you just said, Josh, which was when, uh, when Roland has his horn cut off, he just says, Oh, okay. Seems fair. Or, you know, small price to pay. And I'm thinking, oh my God. Okay. I'm certain that that horn was near and dear to him and maybe served a functional purpose, like equilibrium, inner ear type of balance thing. You know, uh, is he going to have a lot of vertigo now? Or, you know, it could just be very decorative and ceremonial. Like people, you know, they may be proud of their horns and uh, that may be a big part of their family and their prestige. Uh, regardless, he's lost one, and I would think that other members of his species would certainly notice that. So this may be a situation in which the pikes have done more than just, 
you know, mutilate him, cause him some physical harm, there may be some other impacts upon him, whether it's societal within his own species or practical, like you said, balance or something else. Um, I suspect that the harm, the punishment is a little deeper than simply the chopping off of a body, body part, uh, since we don't know what that body part does here. What did, what did you guys think? And would it grow back? Yeah, right, right. Would it grow back? Yeah, good so, point. So I don't think it's going to grow back um, because Visago has a broken horn also. Um, and his syndicate is called the Broken Horn Syndicate. Whether or not Visago took over from Roland and maybe perhaps emulated his look, um, it remains to be seen. Whether or not Visago ultimately was once Roland, it remains to be seen. But, um, you know, I, I, that, that broken horn thing seems to be a, a, a point of pride at some point later on down the line. Um, as for the mutilation side of things, um, consent actually is really important because um, technically, um, you know, my tattoos are bodily body mutilation. Um, technically, my ear piercings is is a my body has been mutilated. Um, a lot of medical procedures you might have to have an amputation. And again, you know, in certain circumstances, most circumstances there's consent, but a lot in some circumstances there's not consent. Um, but to have it be part of a contract, as Steve was very clear, clear uh, you know, as as a as a condition or as a, a consideration for a contract. Um, that is not okay. Uh, but definitely, uh, Roland was not consenting to this at all. This was a, a it was clearly a, a punishment um, and uh, not one that, that he had agreed to in any way, shape or form. But it's, a, it's an interesting kind of area of, of exploration, definitely. So I didn't think about the tattoo or ear piercing thing. Steve, <laughs> you have any tattoos or ear piercings? Because I'm sure neither one of us do, which is probably why neither one of us thought of that at all. So uh, plastic surgery is another area where people agree to have all sorts of things done to them in order to, um, you know, I'm total and completely with consent to it. Um, and, you know, I don't know necessarily um, if, uh, if they knew the, the details that went into some of the plastic surgery that they'd be as, as okay with it. But certainly a lot of stuff gets taken apart, moved around and, 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 and some people would argue is, is mutilated, um, but it's you know, because they want it, not because they don't want it. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, there's a long tradition in our society of trying to alter our physical appearance to appear more attractive or you know, to achieve some kind of status. Um, you know, one thing that jumps to mind uh, for me is that in Asian culture, having sort of an extra um, sort of crease in your eyelid is considered a mark of beauty. And some people who do not have that crease will go out and get surgery to, um, to obtain that sort of crease. And you know, for them, it's, it may very well be worth it. Uh, it. It is what it is. You know, people can do what they want. Um, you know, and that is a that, that is an accepted and legal procedure, uh, you know, so long as they pay for it, so. Yeah, but, you know, the cosmetic surgery is not take off the ear. Like, so that's the, you know, it's one thing to get fake eyebrows. It's another thing to 
uh, lop off, extract some teeth. Um, that it, it's, it sounds more like torture. So unless you have too many teeth and they don't fit in your mouth. Um, but that's just personal experience. Um, <laughs> oh, genetics. Um, that said, uh, let's talk about what the infestation is. Did either of you catch the name of the bugs that live under the town? Mm -hmm. I, I didn't either, other than uh, it, I was thinking, is this going to be like Geonosis? And it kind of is, but they're not, they don't look sentient. They look like, um, you know, giant bugs and and uh, that are that make a huge mess when they die. So, um, and, and Wrecker is uh, apparently scared of them. So that was something, uh, as soon as he was talking tough, I went, this is gonna end badly for him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I sensed a little bit of um, Temple of Doom, like with the minecart race or chase uh except it's different type of carts with you know hanging from the overhead yeah and right uh, a little you know elements of aliens and other yeah. sci-fi horror that it's they black. yeah yeah uh, another yeah. excellent yeah. example you know it's let's think of all the creepy weird stuff and just kind of work this into a children's cartoon and see how it goes and it worked. Uh, uh, that also raises weird issues from a, you know, urban planning development. Why do you build a town over that? <laughs> right. Uh, it's like. Yeah, it's like it's like building a house over an Indian graveyard, right, or Native yeah, American I graveyard. Like, <laughs> I was about to go. It's like, did any of you see Poltergeist? Like, <laughs> no, yeah. this is going to end. Uh, I mean, I guess. Yeah, it's looking at um the fact that you can't sue the city so you know it, but it's <laughs> I, i'm oh i'm sure we can i mean because oh, yeah. they knew about it. it it's just if you know about the thing that can come up out of the ground and take your child i'm pretty sure there would be tort lawyers going after the city for that uh, but it's just it's very peculiar depends on what the tort claims act of the state is though <laughs> There might be some sovereign immunity there that um, that you know they established fairly early on with the knowledge that this was there because this looks like it's a pretty old. Yeah, it's just why would you do that? It's like knowing like well we know a lot of rattlesnakes live here, so we're going to build a house on top of it. It's like why do we we either get rid of the snakes or we just go build someplace else? Like we don't need that kind of craziness. You know, with people with something the same size as a human being that can fly and kill you, why do that? And they they did find a way to coexist. So it's not like they went out and we're just going to go firebomb the hell out of the hive and it won't be a problem anymore. It's, um, again, it's very much the local government issue of we'll just ignore it and hope it doesn't become a problem later. Um, because you know that's never worked out badly, um, ever. Uh, so yeah, it's just very peculiar that this wasn't. Re I mean, like the re re remediation plan was to put big doors. 
So you can't let them, you know, they don't get out, but they can fly up because it's a canyon. Again, very peculiar. Uh, and uh, uh, Steve, I'm sure your wife would have some lovely thoughts on about local government getting sued on, on something like that. <laughs> yeah, I know I, Christina's right on. You know, you have to look at what the local tort claims act is, whether it's you know for the local government or for some larger federal type of government, overarching government. Um, so you know, we, we just don't know here. Um, yeah, I, I did. I will comment that uh, I liked how the Bad Badge ultimately dealt with the swarm, uh, which they did through non-lethal means. When Tech comes up with the light bomb um, and sort of you know, incapacitates or scares off the uh, the creatures, so they're able to at least get their you know get the spice back without. I mean, they do kill some of them, uh, but without, I, I think, inflicting mass casualties. So. Well, and the, the light weapon that tech makes is not an incendiary device. Right. No, it's, it's, it's a light device that you know, is how you can deal with moths. You know, like it doesn't, it, it directs them someplace else. He didn't incinerate the hive, even though that would have been one way to deal with the problem, uh, but that would have been, I'm gonna go kill a few thousand of these things because it's Sunday evening and right. he doesn't do that plan. So that's actually good that we see a character not resort to mass death as the solution to the problem. Um, it's a diversionary tactic so their people can escape. So overall, I really enjoyed this episode, but. I've been enjoying all of them because they make me happy. Um, <laughs> it's, I like if he again, if he told nine-year-old me that there would be Star Wars animated series that would be good for all ages, I I don't know if I would have believed you. Yeah, right. But I'm super grateful for what we have now. Um, Steve, did your boys like this? They did. I, I asked them, you know, sort of what they thought. Um, <clears throat> I think our younger one was a little creeped out by the swarm. You know, he, he gets spooked a little more easily. Um, they were <laughs> they were a little taken aback with the uh, the pikes and you know the mutilation of Roland there. Um, and they're wondering, they keep wondering how this is all going to end. I think there's only a few episodes left at this point. Uh, we all like Omega a lot in in our house, and so we're hoping that she she you know does okay and. Um, you know, makes it out of this and has further adventures. But of course, we're leading up to the big clash between Crosshair and the rest of the Bad Batch. And we'll see how that goes down as well. Um, I don't know, we, we have some thoughts. We're thinking that, uh, you know, in a sort of the ideal world, Crosshair gets turned and he joins the Bad Batch and everyone lives happily ever after, right? You know, they join the rebellion and fight back against the empire. I think it's probably safe to say that that's unlikely to happen. Uh, something's going to happen. We're going to lose one or two, or you know, some people are going to get um, some characters will be harmed or die or sacrifice themselves. Um, you know, I, I think that is far more likely than sort of the rosy ending that we're hoping for. Uh, I don't, you think of the end of Clone Wars where. 
you know, the music playing is called Burying the Dead. Yeah. And there's no dialogue. So yeah. this could go a few ways. I I would love for Crosshairs to have the chip turned off because all the actions that he's done, you know, the way he became a war criminal was because of that chip. And if that's deactivated, his reaction, I think, would be amazing to watch because I'm pretty sure he'd be super upset of, I ordered children to get shot. Like, I, I killed people who didn't deserve to die, like who weren't my enemy. And now I'm super upset about that. That would be, um, and then have them live. Because whenever we've seen, you know, you know, Vader or Ben Solo, like both die. Like, you know, let's avoid all the complex feelings that are going to happen from you participating in genocide and just have you conveniently die. So we're going to skip all of the hard stuff. Crosshairs turning and surviving would allow for a, a great exp exploration of guilt and how do you redeem yourself? What do you do to try to make the world a better place? Knowing what you've done, well, that would be far more interesting to see than, you know, if he stays bad or if he gets killed in the process because death is the easy way out and for that story. Uh, Christina, we've got three episodes left. Any, any thoughts? Well, definitely the, the reckoning with Crosshair is, is due. Um, and I think also, I mean, it hasn't been announced whether or not this is a single ser season series or if we're going to keep on going. Um, because I feel like this isn't just about the Bad Batch, but it's about the clones altogether. And ultimately, we know that the clones get replaced by the Grand Army of whatever they're called, the Empire. Um, and how they get decommissioned is kind of a fascinating aspect, I think. And I, I'm curious if um, the chips play a part of that. Uh, it just seems like an easy way to, um, you know, have an automatic self-destruct or something like that. So, you know, getting as many chips out of uh, uh, out of people as possible in the next three episodes, I think, might be a important role. But at the same time, we have Crosshair after these guys, um, and I'm not entirely convinced that Crosshair is a good guy when he doesn't have his chip going. Um, I'm not entirely clear, convinced that. I mean, he had um, inclinations towards um, fascism before anybody started messing with his chip. Um, and I'm not sure that even he could tell you um, what is chip behavior versus his ordinary, you know, inclinations towards being a loner towards, um, you know, he, when, when we saw him in the, the Clone Wars episodes and the, the first episode about Bad Batch, he wasn't exactly the guy that, you know, you, you would go to for, um, for advice on how to take out people. Uh, I mean, not take out, to, to do the, the mission. His, his job was to shoot people from afar. Um, so, and he was very, very good at that. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very curious what his real, what, what, what underneath of all of him is, because I'm not entirely convinced that he's 
he's he's a good a good guy interesting you know i think back to the prior episode uh rescuing ryloth with his reaction to hauser's speech which wasn't like rah rah i mean like he said arrest those traitors but you know like what's he thinking because is, is he just pro-empire or or what the other interesting thing to see what they do is with the Kaminoans. You know, there's there's the on switch for Order sixty six with the trip uh, chip. Is there an off switch? Can they deactivate all of them at once? Because that would be interesting. Because again, the best way to recruit for the rebellion is from the Empire. You know, especially for those who fought for the Republic, and. Um, especially though, I mean, again, a test for personality and self-awareness is those who still have unique armor that they painted on it, that they put their own designs on it, that they have their own haircuts. Like that's, I mean, like that's the test for going like that guy's still free or less under control. Again, Hauser, a good example of somebody who clearly was not just programmed he was looking at the situation going this is wrong i don't like this and a bunch of his uh, troopers threw down their weapons are we going to see more of that and you know for those who fought against the separatists are they going to convert and go seek out rex and others um and like that would be fascinating if that's the beginning army that the rebellion gets is former clone troopers. So again, they have lots of creative options. Well, and the other thing is that Rex and and Wolf and Gregor weren't part of the rebellion. Um, You know, they didn't join up until until Ahsoka hunted them down through the um, Phoenix Squadron years and years into the rebellion. So a lot of them made up just like done what, um, what's his name, and just went into hiding. I have a sense that Rex right now is working for Bale. Just and you know, with their advanced aging, I I wouldn't be surprised if when we saw the clones on in Rebels, which is 15 years after the end of the Clone Wars, maybe they were active for five to eight years afterwards in the early days of the rebellion and then retired, quote unquote. Um, like we're going fishing. Um, that's possible. Um, so we'll see. I it's you know, like think about where each of us was a decade ago or 15 years ago versus where we are now or try to imagine where we will each be in 15 years. And it's like could be very different places. So so maybe. We'll see, because people aren't stagnant. But that said, I'm just grateful to have this. <laughs> so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing. So with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you listen to us on any of our podcast platforms, please leave a review. Uh, we have a Patreon with some additional content. Looking to add more. And 
Uh, until then, everyone stay safe, stay healthy, and above all else, stay geeky. <laughs>